welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode number 135, 135. And again, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them for us in the comments section on Podbean, which is our primary carrier and and how we create the podcast. And you can uh, also email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. K-B-M-A-K-E-L at A-O-L dot com. Uh, today we're going to deviate from the uh, usual format. Um, I've gotten a bunch of follow-ups for things I've said, <laughs> things I've said or uh, questions I've had. So I, I thought I would, uh, I thought I'd kind of address those. And so I've got a, a list of these things and uh, been getting these things over the last couple of weeks. So I thought I would just, uh, just go ahead and address them and be kind of fun sort of a not really questions and answers but some of them are in, in as questions so it's kind of a an expanded what do you think type of uh, um, broadcast so anyway we'll just go ahead and you can see what I think about these things and if you disagree you can of course contact me and I will read your comments on the air so uh, first one is Keltech for the Ukraine, and it's got a big question mark there. Why are you so down on Keltech for sending weapons to the Ukraine? Well, I'm not down on them for for doing that. I'm, well, I guess I am. Um, what I'm down on them for is number one, they're sending them Keltechs, which I wouldn't wish on any. I mean, they're better than high points. I mean, I'll give them that. But frankly, those weapons are not what we would. Um, to co-opt a term, we, we would not consider them military or police grade or quality weapons. I mean, I mean, face it. I, I know they make the, uh, they make some goofy assault rifle. They make some double barrel goofy pump action shotgun. But the guns that they were talking about were the sub two thousands. I think they had four hundred of them. Um, they probably had already been paid for, and I think the paperwork had already been done and. So they were ready to export them, but you know, really, what is a what is a semi-automatic nine-millimeter carbine going to do for you in an AK world over there? I mean, um, it, it's is it better than nothing? Possibly. Uh, I don't know who you would hand those out to. I mean, I guess if the Ukrainians have truck drivers or something else, maybe some back. The only possible use was can it free up some AKs to go to you know where the action is suppose but there doesn't seem to be a shortage of AKs over there that the problem with this whole thing is that they're not begging for small arms they're what they are begging for are anti-armor anti-aircraft and indeed heavy heavy weapons that's what they're really asking for so you know to donate them uh, some goofy pistol caliber rifle just doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, you know, I, I'm assuming they have 9mm ammo over there, although I, I bet there's not as much as people think because it's an AK world. And uh, even... And I think the majority of stuff they're going to use is obviously the classic AK calibers, 5.45 and 7.62, both by 39. Um, or they're going to have some 5.56 weapons. I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of 9mm just floating around over there to, to feed these, these goofy things. 
another thing is uh, you know what magazines do they take can they get more would you even bother to get more for for these things i mean you know is it is it actually worth the ukrainian government's time to to spend even a even a even a small amount of time on this thing you know i, I don't know so that's why i'm down on keltech uh, the other thing is you know keltech to go back to the military grade part i mean you know, I just, from what I've seen of Caltech, those are not weapons that are going to take the kind of punishment that frontline infantry weapons take. Um, the frontline infantry weapons are engineered and designed to absorb an incredible amount of punishment. I mean, they really can, and uh, I don't, I don't see these things doing that. I, you know, there could be, like I was joking. Uh, Last time, you know, you're going to see the parts kits or maybe the complete guns on the market. And the only use on them is going to be whatever damage they got from when somebody has flung them as hard as they could. So I just see it as, as more useless virtue signaling. And I guess we'll talk more about the Ukraine. i got another question about that later on. But that's, that's kind of where it is. Okay, the next thing is, what is the future for ammo and component prices? Well, if I knew that, I would have a, the greatest crystal ball in the world. My assumption is there will be adequate supplies of, of at least the most popular calibers. Because it looks like the manufacturers have broken the code on 5.56 and uh, 9mm. And other stuff is, is slowly following. Uh, the dry up of the steel cased ammo that we've all known and loved, you know, the stuff from Russia, you know, that, that's gone forever. Uh, before the Ukraine invasion, I thought it would just be gone until we had a legal regime change here where the people who stole the 2020 election would finally get run out of, out of uh, office in 2024, then things might return to normal. But uh, basically this thing in the Ukraine is about as ugly as it gets. And you can't be joking about war crimes. And I've seen, it appears that both sides have committed war crimes. Killing prisoners, killing civilians. What, you know, it's just, it's as bad as it gets. The last time we saw something this bad was probably the Balkans. And um, so how this is all going to play out, I don't know. But the longer and uglier it goes, the harder it's going to be to repair. And uh, that's that's one of my gripes against the in, in the previous question is if you really want to have an impact, send money or or get into the deal where you're sending humanitarian relief to these poor people who've lost everything, everything from their homes, their livelihoods to you know their family members. I mean, you know, don't give them don't give them more weapons if you're a private citizen don't get behind something like that get behind the humanitarian aid that's that's just my whole thing is that you know when when push comes to shove 10 years from now um what really is going to have made a difference is the humanitarian aid so anyway uh what do i see for the prices let me get to the real question okay the 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 steel case stuff unless we can find somebody else who can make it is is gone for a long time 
uh, the the major companies have uh, have broken the code so it'll be around it's going to be more expensive than anybody would like but at least it'll be there components if they can get a couple of these other factories up and making uh, primers again because that's the the long pole in the tent right now um, the primers are what we need and we need them at reasonable prices I mean $125 for a thousand primers is not really sustainable and that's going to kill the re the hand loading or put a significant dent in the hand loading hobby or, or endeavors that people have people hand load for different reasons um, some people hand load just to get cheaper ammo and they're willing to do the extra work and invest the time to gain the uh, and buy the equipment and gain the expertise to make ammo that you know they can shoot and I do some of that that's that's a lot of what I do the other half is they produce ammunition that's not commonly available I do some of that and they also want to produce some high quality ammo for for you know whatever re competition reasons and I do some of that too so I do some of all three but you can't do any of it without primers and you can't really do a lot of it without reasonably priced primers so hope that that kind of goes back um, the other things to do which is just self-defense is if primers are going to be high you've got to cut costs elsewhere and there's not a whole lot of ways you can do that now one way you can do that is doing your own bullet casting um, it's still relatively inexpensive to get into you can buy I think they're I think they're a little more pricey now like everything but you know a good Lee mold is about 30 bucks and a furnace is about 60 70 bucks maybe uh, you know just whatever common caliber you have that you got you know you're gonna have brass and you know you can get expensive primers for if you can cast your own projectiles you know you can kind of offset some of that primer cost so that's uh, that's what I I tend to do and uh, you know that's why I've been experimenting with 3030 cast bullets and that's why I experimented with powder coating um, you know with a powder coated bullet especially in like nine millimeter you know you can basically get good velocities out of those you can you can you can duplicate at least the low-end factory loads with that um, that powder coating is a good coating and it it really does um, you know stop letting it's not as good as jacketed but it's pretty darn good it's a lot better than the traditional lubes that I've I've found you know and, and there's nothing worse than having a leaded barrel in a nine millimeter because they're they're horror it's it's horrible to scrub that out uh, there are people who can turn out lead bullet loads that are very light that that action that you know cycle the action of their gun and to that I, I I commend them but I think I feel a lot better having a powder coated bullet so that's what I do now for 45 ACP I don't need it I just don't drive them at that higher velocity 45 ACP is inherently a low velocity cartridge so uh, but for 3030 32 Winchester special and a few other things hey they're great um, absolutely go for it and definitely definitely um, 
bullet cast, anything you can do to offset the high price of primers. And I'm hoping primers at least come back to something approaching reasonableness, you know. Uh, right now, I'd even take 50 bucks for a thousand primers. I think that would be a, a lot better position than where we are now. But, you know, hopefully it'll go back down to about what I think the market is about $30 is, is really where the market wants to be on that. So we'll see. Uh, the, the good part about components is that uh, even some of the more esoteric um, cartridge cases are, are being made. The bigger manufacturers who make brass are, are kind of going back. Now that they've satisfied the 9mm 5.56 market, they're going back. And I noticed that there was even 9mm Largo brass for sale at Graphs. Um, you know, like everything else, it's not cheap, but at least it's available. And um, having gone through now what is a two-year drought of availability, you know, you got to be grateful for, for what's out there. So I think the, the overall trend is that they will, it will gradually decrease, but it's not the bottom isn't going to fall out of the market, which we don't want it to do anyway. We want it to gradually slope till it reach, reaches equilibrium where, where the market should be. So... That way the manufacturers still keep making it and we can still get it and the price is a lot more reasonable than it is today. Okay, what are a couple of false gun myths people still believe? Well, I don't know. I you know, I tend to believe that that with the explosion of information on the internet and, and even things like YouTube and even with all the flawed content that's been created, there's a lot of great um, there's a lot of great resources out there. There are still some of the discussion boards which which put out excellent info. You know, gun boards is excellent for a lot of the Milserp stuff, and there's Smith and Wesson forums, there's Colt forums, and you know where a lot of the kind of the current information is is out there. I really think, though, that, um, you know, the, the myths, and, and a lot of the myths have been busted. You know, there are a lot of a lot of busted myths out there that, you know, AK never jam, ARs are unreliable, and, and that's, that's a, you know, that's one of the, the big myths, that the AR is unreliable. I don't think there's anybody who's tuned in that actually believes that today. Um, I've to often told the story, and I've told it on this podcast, but I will bore you with it again. When I bought my first AR, I, people would walk by it on the range going, and literally going, that's a piece of shit. That's the one that was jamming in Vietnam and got all our guys killed and blah, blah, blah. None of that was true. Um, you know, yeah, did they issue the rifle without cleaning kits? Yeah. Did they basically have the wrong kind of powder in it? Yeah. Did it create problems? Yeah. But they solved that very quickly. And, you know, it was really an excellent weapon. Most... Most of the real soldiers, and I'm not talking about the, the blowhards and, and some of these other guys, but you talk to like real special operations guys who were actually, actually doing stuff. Talk to people who were actually doing stuff in the Vietnam War, and they loved the M16. They loved it. I was amazed at that. I thought the first guy I ever asked about that was a um, special forces uh, master sergeant. And I expected him to say, yeah, the M16's trash, you know, the FNFAL is better, the G3 is better, blah, blah, blah. Because he had experience with all these weapons. And he said, he said, the M16 is hands down the best 
rifle out there, and I, I was shocked. I, it was it was the unexpected. I expected the conventional wisdom that he would that he would validate the conventional wisdom, and he did not. He actually told me the truth, which I later found out to be very true myself. So um, that's and you know there's a reason that people want retro ARs now. It's not just nostalgia. It's that they are lightweight, they're effective. And they're really good weapons. And that's why people are, are even to the point where they're building their own out of parts. They love those uh, um, retro ARs. So the AR Unreliable, that's one. Uh, another one was, this one's been dead for a while, I think. But there's still people out there that talk about it. Smith & Wesson, in the early part of the 20th century, made a gun. It's basically their end frame gun called the triple lock because it had another lock on the uh, uh, that locked the cylinder into place that the cylinder crane they call it it had a little it had a detent and a little ball and it would it would lock it up those things were shoved down everybody's throat as the epitome of the accurate revolver the triple lock was so much better than anything else that was out there and Smith & Wesson screwed up by simplifying the design and eliminating the third lock. All of that is trash and garbage. None of it is true. None of it is even remotely true. Uh, the truth of the matter is most triple locks had fixed sights. So how was it determined how, how brilliantly accurate they were? And they were accurate like other end frame guns of that era were accurate. But they weren't so superior. As a matter of fact, Smith & Wesson ditched it before World War I. They basically said, look, this is just, we're, this is running the cost up and it's not giving us any tangible benefit. So a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago, they basically said triple lock, just, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze because there's no juice there. There's no additional accuracy benefit to having this lock. But it just came that it was the greatest thing in the world and part of that I think came from the fact that Elmer Keith did a lot of his early experimenting with triple locks so he was talking about how great they were and it's the same old thing of yeah the ones that were made before are better quality than the ones made now even though the ones made quote now in Elmer Keith's time were made in the 20s and 30s which we consider now a gold standard of of revolvers but Anyway, um, the triple lock was overrated. It was a complete myth, and they didn't shoot any better than anything else. But for years, they were shoved down our throat and up our butts as the greatest example of a revolver there was. Let's see another myth here. Oh, the pre-64 Winchester myth. That, you know, the, the rifles we get off assembly lines now are infinitesimally better than the rifles that were produced you know the factory off the assembly line rifles that were produced you know up to about the year 2000 maybe even 2010 I mean um, the fact of the matter is the pre-64 Winchesters all had this all have this this aura of greatness and, and part of that was what happened in 1964 was Winchester looked at their line and they had modernized it. They had gotten rid of a few things, 
you know, the 1907 Winchesters and all that stuff, kind of in the 50s, they got rid of all that stuff. In the 60s, early 60s, they looked and they said, these are getting too expensive to make. Our guns are too expensive. What can we do to lower the cost and keep the price point so that we're competitive? And, and you got to remember, there was some, there was some real competition in the market. The Savage was kind of cranking up their bolt actions. The Remington 700 had been introduced in 1962. You know, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of competition out there, and and Winchester was expensive. They were expensive because of the materials and and how they manufactured them. So they went to uh, in the case of the 3030, they went to a receiver that was I don't know, essentially cast is about the best way to describe it. Um, and they started using black oxide as a uh, finish as opposed to the deep bluing which took a lot of surface preparation and everything else um, they started using some um, you know cheaper parts ones that weren't cast out, or ones that weren't forged out of metal but might be casts or made out of sintered metal or something um, you know they, they, they just had to do that to keep to keep uh, the price point down and that affected almost all of their their line. I think they quit making the Model 12, except for you know special runs, you know where they would they would use that because the Model 12 did not lend itself to to any kind of economy in manufacture. And uh, so the Model 70 went from this kind of Mauser controlled feed action to basically the push action like the Remington 700 and of course it was cheaped out and it was vilified the post 64 Winchester Model 70 was just vilified in actuality it's a pretty good rifle it's roughly equivalent to the Remington 700s of the time I mean they're both push actions and the Remington 700 went on to garner this this mythic reputation of how great it is and in some ways, that's a lot of that is true. It's a very you know used by the military and everything. But the Model 70 was derided as being a cheap version of a previously you know wonderful rifle. And the truth of the matter is, the pre-64 70s weren't that accurate. I mean, especially compared to rifles now, they're kind of a joke. I mean, the only reason to really admire them is the quality of manufacture and the classic design that's really the only reason to do that and uh, the, the big myth that was connected with that as well you know you don't want a push action when you're confronting dangerous game you want that controlled feed action why I don't know because if we're gonna use a push action in warfare you know it seems like that's just as dangerous but you know what? What do I know? Um, so anyway, they would they would uh, you know there was article after article about that. A lot of Winchester bashing. So yeah, that was a complete myth. In in point of fact, I knew a couple of rust, custom, not rustum, but custom rifle makers. I knew uh, one guy in particular, and he essentially said that he built African rifles on Winchester Model 70 actions, saying it was an outstanding action. And so you know if you've got if you're at the time you're looking at the early night late 1970s early 1980s a four or five thousand dollar hunting rifle was 
an incredible luxury. It was it was a Rolex of, you know, cost more than a Rolex at that time. So you're looking at some very, very high-end um, people were buying the Winchester Model 70 post-64 and completely, completely satisfied with it. Yeah, that, the other... Um, the other gun myth was that the Winchester Model 12 was the greatest shit pump shotgun ever made. That it turns out it's not. It's um, it's actually quite a bit. Uh, um, you know, it's actually kind of a cranky, uh, overly complex action. It's it's very well made, but it, it was not the legendary uh, thing. And there used to be people who were just devotees. There was no other shotgun besides the Winchester Model 12, and it came out in all kinds of superior grades and everything um, and different for different uses upland game and trap and, and skeet and all this and then that's all disappeared now that's all all those people who believe that have, have aged out and now they're gone okay will the revolver become extinct for anything other than nostalgia purposes I, I think there's a danger of that happening but what counterbalances that danger is the fact that Colt is reintroducing revolvers, and Smith and Wesson sells revolvers. Ruger sells a a lot of revolvers, and so there's something there. There's something more than nostalgia there. Um, in fact, I would I would guess that the nostalgia market will probably shrink as cowboy action shooting. In my guess, in ten years, will probably shrink because it's shrinking now so why, why wouldn't it continue but I think a good double action revolver has got a lot going for it and I've, I've, I've covered all that before but accuracy power quality uh, those things are, are are treasured by people who really do shoot handguns and you see that the Colt Python the reintroduction of the Colt Python even though it's less perfect than its predecessor uh, you saw how hot that was for two years. You couldn't get them, and I don't even know what the waiting period is now. I've I've heard that it's just down to weeks, not it's not months anymore. And the fact that they felt confident enough to reintroduce the Anaconda, you know, that tells you that the trend is going. Now, if they would just reintroduce the Diamondback, that would be what a perfect trio to have. So I don't think it's going to become uh, become extinct. I will say that it, and it actually ties into a couple later questions, so I'll I'll answer those as they go. But no, the revolver, power, simplicity, dependability, reliability, accuracy, all those things are very good, and the revolver has them all. Okay, what are some firearms you don't like? I, I won't say that I I don't. There, there are guys who, I hate this, I hate that, this is junk, that's trash. I don't really look at that that way. I don't, even Keltec, I don't hate them. I just don't think that they're frontline combat weapons in any way, shape, or form. Um, usually guns I just ignore. So, what are some of the guns I ignore? I'll have to say that, and, and this will rankle a lot of people, I think the Colt single action army is the most over it's one of the most recognized guns of all time and it's one of the most overrated guns of all time um, for some odd reason I grew up with Ruger revolvers Blackhawks essentially 
and uh, I shoot those pretty well. Uh, they're, the single action as a design is not optimized for accuracy. The, the triggers are usually pretty good, but the hammer drop is long, and uh, when it hits the when the, the hammer hits the frame, it, it can disturb the aim a little bit. Um, you know, and a lot of times there's some there's throat versus bore there's cylinder throat versus bore dimension uh, disparities that that are there. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of reasons single actions are are not quite as good to me as a um, as a good double action revolver is good to me. So, um, but Ruger's are much better. They got better sights and everything else. The Colt has what the Colt the Colt single action army is one of the few guns that has never evolved or incrementally improved over the years. The, the ones, if you buy one today that's that's freshly made or even one of the Italian copies, it's essentially the 1873 gun. Okay, 1873 was a long time ago. It was 149 years ago. Um, what are the things that, that have transpired since? Um, I would say that one of the things that has transpired since, the biggest thing is the sights on the single action army are close range sights and they're usually not very good at anything longer and I'm, I'm talking like 15 yards or longer they're just usually not very good um, if you build one to its original specifications I don't know to what ammunition that is kind of regulated and so the only way to adjust the sight is this horrible process of putting the barrel in a padded vise, putting a block in the frame with the cylinder removed, and torquing it to move the slight the front sight slightly left or slightly right. And to adjust the elevation, you have to file the front sight. That to me, and no one's going to do that on a gun you just paid two thousand dollars for or fifteen hundred bucks, whatever a Colt single action army cost today. I, I think you can still get them. They may be a custom shop deal, but nobody's going to do that. Because when you do that, you've now devalued the revolver. So I, I don't really care for them. To me, they're more of a they're more of a bobble now than they are any kind of a, a working gun or any kind of a useful useful gun. Um, if you want if you want that gun and you don't want the look of adjustable sights on it, uh, you have to go to one of the Italian clones or a Ruger, and then you can do whatever you want to those. You know because that just doesn't matter so uh, that's the that's the the deal I don't really care for them I think they're overvalued for what they are there the myth and nostalgia around them drives the price up um, really beyond what they are now they are beautiful but they've also become you know face it they've become so passe um, in westerns yeah kind of everybody has when you don't even give it a second look and that's one reason why a lot of the the newer made westerns have you know the variety of kind of older revolvers kind of keeps it more interesting so yeah that's it um, anything in 50 BMG I ignore because number one I don't want to shoot guns that hurt me number two um, the 50 BMG as we we spoke was the last podcast or the one before it's got a very specific use and that is to put a big thunk on something but if you're just out shooting paper or I would even argue if you're just out shooting steel, there's so many better cartridges 
that you can use go to the extended long-range community you know the gold standard of 338 Lapua Magnum but there's also all kinds of other interesting cartridges out there that um, recoil less and are fundamentally a lot more accurate so um, and they're in the kind of guns that can deliver that accuracy uh, most people don't know it but uh, most of the guns that are chambered in 50 BMG are not super precise accurate in fact they are just designed to fundamentally safely actuate that cartridge and accuracy is you know the priority after that it's not the number one priority so I don't really care for 50 BMG if I was in interested in 50 BMG I would probably look seriously if I had a target that I had to damage severely I would look at 50 BMG but really I'd also be looking at the Anzio Ironworks 20 millimeter they're not as they're not act that accurate either compared to you know these other long-range target cartridges but if I need to put a heavy bullet on a target and do it damage that, that might be the way I'd go other even other than 50 BMG but I have absolutely no uh, requirement use desire for any of that so it's all moot uh, the other thing I don't like are semi-automatic versions of open bolt light machine guns uh, these are all kind of um, these are all kind of the you know they take a parts kit and they're usually very limited production uh, if they don't work or don't work well you got to send it back to the guy who built it uh, he may or may not be around or doing that anymore um, and it's you know it's, it is while they can be interesting I found that most of them have issues with trigger pulls or reliability it's 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 just a it's just a shame their historical value is awesome and I understand why people have them and want them and if they're willing to live with the problems that's fine uh, the exception to that is the uh, Ohio Ordnance BAR that's a that's an excellent gun but um, I just don't need a 30-06 that heavy so I, therefore I don't have one so there you go oh here's another big fly in the ointment opinion of the new 6.8 round for the army the new rifle to replace the M4 and the M249 okay uh, number one 6.5 weapons have traditionally as infantry and machine gun cartridges been suspect the only good 6.5 light machine gun there ever was was the Japanese Nambu which was a excellent weapon it was an excellent infantry weapon probably the only excellent weapon the Japanese had the rest of their stuff was clunky garbage but um, the 6.5 Nambu was excellent um, the Italians the Japanese and had they had to actually fight the Swedes all would have they basically would have come to the same conclusion that the Italians and Japanese did the 6.5 was too light so therefore um, you know that the history kind of says 6.8 is not too much different than 6.5 so I don't know that that they will be happy with the terminal ballistics of that I'm just saying just don't know seems like it's going to have more trajectory than a uh, 5.56 so a lot of the advantages we got by adopting 5.56 we seem to be throwing back on the table 
as uh, we adopt a 6.8. The other thing that's never going to work, and, and anybody with half a brain can tell them this, um, there's no way you're going to replace the M4 and the M249 with the same weapon. You will either have a weapon too light to be a squad automatic weapon, or you will have a weapon too heavy to be the kind of light rifle that you need. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's so simple. The other thing too, I, I will say, I looked at this thing, you know, they've got it, they've got this new fire control system, which is a fancy word for the scope system that Vortex has, give, has gotten adopted. Supposedly has a computer and a range ballistic, you know, all this other kind of nonsense. Okay, it's got that. This thing has also got a sound suppressor on the end. Uh, you know, are you going to hand this to somebody who's been in the army less than a year? Can they, do they have the experience and the training to handle a weapon that complex? Because, face it, you hand somebody an M16A1, you get them to zero it, and they've got a good weapon. Now, granted, it's got iron sights and, and all that, but you've got a good weapon. If you hand somebody, this, if you hand the same guy the weapon, it's got a suppressor, it's got the, the fancy sight with the computer that you're supposed to be able to manipulate and all the rest of this. How successful is that going to be? It seems like you're introducing a lot more variables. And uh, this will come up in a later question. Uh, I need to get a move on here. But the fact of the matter is I don't think that what they've tried this before with the M14 one weapon cannot replace two or three others so it's not going to work very well and I don't think they'll like the 6.8 cartridge and I think this is the, also the 6.8 cartridge that's half of its polymer the other half is brass you know I mean it's just if, if red flags aren't dancing in front of your eyes right now when you read the articles about it they will they will Okay, what is your opinion of the SIG M17, M18 versus the Beretta M9? Well, I have to tell you, um, I'm, I'm unimpressed by the SIG. I mean, it's, and the reason I'm unimpressed by it has nothing really to do with the gun. It just, okay, we've got another 9mm pistol. I mean, so what? I mean, I, I look at it, so, oh, okay, it'll hold 17 rounds instead of 15. Okay. Um, I don't know where that's been a factor. I read all the com. I, I mean, I've read. I can't say I read all, but I know I've read the vast majority of after combat action reports that were came out of Iraq and Afghanistan, and nobody really worried about capacity, and nobody said we got to have a 17 round or you know gun as opposed to the 15 round gun. Nobody, nobody ever said that. So I don't, I, I don't see that as a big advantage. I, I see that as a so what. It doesn't matter. Um, I know the first round of M17s they sent to the Army were sent back to SIG, who, who later sold them to civilians. Um, you know, kind of a special deal, you know, because they had some problems that they had to correct. Um, okay, the only advantage I see is you don't have the double action first shot because it's not a, the M17 is not a DASA system like the Beretta was. Other than that, I just don't see. I'm I'm just not that excited about it. I don't see it as a big deal. I don't see pistols as that important anyway. 
and I certainly don't see the hoopla around this. Could have kept the M9, just bought more M9s. And you know, I'm not totally ignorant about all this. I mean, I came in, I carried a 1911 for a long time. I carried a Beretta 92 for a long time. And I, I've said before, the Beretta is a, is a worthy successor to the 1911. Never thought I'd say that because I was a big 1911 guy and I still am. But the Beretta is a good gun. So I, M17, M18, who knows. Why the Marines would shoot, go for the shorter version is, is you know, again, we, we've laughed about that. That they, uh, you know, shorter is more cool. Even though it's got a shorter sight radius and less accurate in long range. and every, You know, what, whatever attributes are there. It's The shorter gun is always inferior in some, and, and unless it's concealability the shorter gun is always inferior and if they had kept that in mind they probably would have gone with the regular one uh, now that you have rural property what firearms are the most useful and why well I don't have a lot of rural property it's a small place but I do have it it's, it's going to eventually be the retirement home probably but um uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's any real revelations here. What I will tell you is that lightweight, relatively powerful, good quality guns are what you need. Um, when it comes to handguns, I have two types that I like. Um, we have a Ruger Wrangler, which is a, a good little gun. A little difficult. I, I don't shoot it as well as I shoot some other things. But, you know, for the stuff that you need a twenty two pistol for, you're going to be up close and it's it's lightweight and it's quality manufacture so I like it um, and it's also not a collector's gun you know I can't I can't take my Colt 22 diamond back out and carry it around in a holster every day out in the rain and everything else you know um, can't do that but I can you know do that with this I, I found that it um, being up here the a gun that I did that I had that I really didn't care for the Walther P22 is a very useful gun uh, it's actually found a niche up here so it's a good gun very lightweight very easy to carry and you know it, it satisfies that first rule of handling a problem which is I've got a gun on me you know and and I do have to say that we chose this land particularly one of the considerations was the very low crime and the very low chance of having a problem with a two-legged adversary so everything up here is going to be four-legged so and most of those are are just you know pets uh pests not pets pests and vermin you know varmints things like that so when i need something bigger i normally carry a revolver my favorite one to carry is a um ex-brazil navy 1917 um it was a pretty scruffy gun. It it got refinished along the way, and it looks it looks a lot better now. It's not it's it's not a collector's item, so it's not so using it does not uh, damage or destroy any history. So those are handguns. Um, rifles I find the most useful are again a 22, 22 with a scope is a is a great rifle. Either either way, um, for anything heavier, uh, I really like a lever action. Um, and that can be in a serious pistol caliber um, 
we got one in 3840 and then uh, have 3030s and 32 specials so those are the ones I find right now most useful that could change but that's that's it what I don't find that useful right now are um, like my optically sighted uh, military battle rifles as much as I absolutely adore them um, they're just not as portable but you know we'll change who knows if we get invaded by buffalo or something I'll, <laughs> I'll probably need those all right do 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 what do you think are the small arms that's in air quotes lessons from the ukraine conflict well there's two there's two ways to approach that the small arm the, the first thing i would say is that it depends on how you classify small arms um, if we're just talking about things rifles and smaller i'll address that i'll say for the larger architecture um, the biggest the biggest lessons i think are you know if you're a country like ukraine or country like finland or someone someone else uh, buy all the anti-tank weapons you can get right now including everything up to and including tanks finland has already done that i think they bought all the leopard tanks that uh, the netherlands had um, but you buy all the tanks you can then you buy all the anti-tank weapons you can and you train everybody how to do that and the other part that goes along with that is you have to protect your tanks and your people so you do need um, you know a good air force and good air defense and how you break that down so that you're not shooting down your own planes because you've handed out way too many of the uh, stinger type anti-aircraft missiles to people how you handle that is is how you handle that but you need you need a lot of that and you need a lot of tanks a lot of tanks a lot of anti because the best anti-tank weapon is another tank even even today people are dogging out tanks right now because the russian tanks aren't doing very well but russian tanks have not done very well since since world war ii so consequently um you know if you've got leopard tanks or m1 tanks you're you're gonna have a whole different ball game but um so get tanks get anti-tank weapons uh, these javelin missile type weapons even down to like m72 a2 laws need to make a comeback because that's like wait you can give one of those to everybody a javelin you gotta they're pretty they're a little bit larger and everything but you know the m72 a2 uh you could give that to everybody and you can you can really wipe out some things and even though they're not that effective against a modern tank anymore they still will do as we used to say they will do a dam dam on uh any other kind of vehicle so trucks or armored personnel carriers or some of these things that kind of look like to the uninitiated look like a tank but they're not they're not nearly as armored and they don't have the firepower systems you know fire control systems or the heavy weapon that it has but any of these other things that are wandering around and there's a lot more of them than there are tanks um m72 would do great so that's what i would do um i would say another another lesson as we're talking about as we're talking about small arms uh iron sights rule i mean i don't see anybody clamoring for optical sights over there i mean i would say that even um you know you see people there with moisten the gants i mean 
I'm Moisen Nagant. Now, all the people who called them garbage rods, all these idiots, don't realize the Moisen Nagant is a combat weapon. And it is definitely, um, definitely still being used, especially with its, uh, you know, the three power scope. That's a very easy scope to use. And it extends the range of the rifle out to, you know, about 500 yards, realistically. So it's a good weapon. Um, you know, the good part is, you know, if you don't have, if you, you're using your iron sights and you're not, you haven't loaded up your rifle with all this other junk, uh, you don't need batteries to run even your holographic sights. Um, you know, on my M forgery, I, I was just playing with it this morning. Um, the deal is, um, I got to flip up sight on it. And in case that optic goes down with the batteries, and I've said this before many times, when it goes down, you just pop up that rear sight and you're, you're back in business. You have that decent rear sight and you can keep engaging targets. Um, you know, so I, every, every serious firearm I have is either iron sighted or if it's optically sighted, it still has iron sights off it. So worst comes to worst, I could somehow pop the optic off. Uh, a few of the, even on the retro rifles, a few of those um, mounts had little see-through holes, so you could still, you don't get a lot of, a lot of great peripheral view or anything, but you could still use your iron sight through those. Really nice option to have. Um, you know, the other, th so, the other thing I'd say about weapons are is that you don't seem to see a lot of pistols there, you know. Sidearms are extra weight, and, and frankly, you know, I, I came from a culture where you carried two weapons. You carried a, a rifle and a sidearm because when you're actually doing any kind of small team stuff, you know, special operations, small team stuff, uh, your rifle goes down, you need a weapon to transition to. Well, you don't obviously carry two rifles, so uh, a handgun was, uh, you know, very, very nice to have. Um, the prevailing culture in the Ukraine seems to be, hey, you got a rifle, it's probably better to carry two or three extra magazines of ammo than it is to carry a sidearm, which you will probably never use. Um, that's just the way that is. Um, it's just a... You know, it's just a, a different a different philosophy, but I think it's a smart philosophy because you know your rifle is your primary weapon. It's it's got your better sighting system on it, even if it's iron sights, and um, you know it's got it's got your firepower. You know, pistols pistols are not as cool as people think. They're they're great for police and law enforcement and and all of that in their routine duties, but you know even when things get hairy for the police, they they go to long arms. So. That's the I think disregard small arms um, that the conventional wisdom that you see around here I would not if I was taking a pistol if I was in the Ukraine the last thing I'd want on my pistol was a, an optical sight uh, I just don't want to play with batteries I don't want to play with the fact it gets broken and I can't you know I just don't want that I want simple simple functional stuff so I would be very happy in the Ukraine to be very blunt, I'd be very happy with a 1911A1 and an M1 rifle, you know, I mean, and I'll talk about that too. What, you know, 
you talk about small arms what are the lessons I think one of the lessons that you have to take from that <clears throat> is number one you don't ever want to be a disarmed refugee if you're forced to leave your your house it's better to do so in an armed group where you can defend yourself and you know you need to carry some essentials with you you need to carry obviously ammunition obviously water and a way to purify water even if it's just a small packet of the tablets and you need to carry some food with you and uh, I realize there's whole industries and, and there's podcasts that talk about things like you know bug out bags and, and how they're and everybody wants to add and, and usually what happens is these things usually wind up to be a ponderous rucksack filled with all sorts of things and the more you can carry face it the bet the better off you are but you know I, I kind of base my thing on um, I was reading about experiences in in the Pacific in World War two and basically um, when the Army of Marines went on a patrol in places like Guadalcanal and, and other kind of other places like that they would take they would take water and ammunition those are the two things that they had to have you know if you're out on a 10 or 12 hour patrol you don't you don't really need food but you do need water and you do need ammunition so you know and now if you're in a place like the Ukraine hey in the winter time your ability to move is going to be pretty pretty restricted by the weather just the cold you know you can't go and you know it's not like you're going to go check into a hotel so you know you're you're really uh you're really constrained there but in the summer what would you really need hey i would say you need food water and ammunition and uh you know yeah carry the little thing of matches um i would you know if you can get mre type meals that you don't need a mess kit or a little pot for but you can you know carry a little pot if you need to whatever it is you need um, you can put in that thing just keeping it under food water and ammunition need a few couple little utensils to eat your food with that's fine but most people go way crazy they're carrying signaling equipment and all kinds of other stuff um, you know something to start a fire is fine but keep it as keep it as basic as possible because um, you know that there are sent you know the sewing kit and the little shelter making thing is not going to be as valuable as extra rounds at some point again it talks and in actuality one of the best weapons they're not going to see them there because they're not there but one of the best weapons to have in a situation like that would be an m1 rifle which you know its ammunition comes loaded in the eight shot clips when you fire it the clip bounces away and you know you just reload so if all of your ammunition is loaded in eight round clips you don't have to have magazines you don't have to manage you know full magazines and empty magazines that, that's that's a nice convenience the only weapon over there like that would be the SVT and I'm sure there's some some of those that are kicking around over there um, but if you've got that in 762 by 54 in you know stripper clips hey you're you're in good shape so that's those are the big lessons from the Ukraine no optical sights um, sidearms are extra weight and you know carry have a backpack ready with food ammunition water a weighted a way to uh, um, 
purify water if you can and you know if I were if I were trying to move from one part of that country to another I would plan routes along places where I knew that there was a decent water supply well those are the the lessons learned as I can think of them right now I'm sure more will emerge and we'll probably revisit this again um, there's another question what do you think of the 300 Remington Ultra Magnum versus the 37830 Weatherby? 37830 Weatherby is just what it says. 378 Weatherby neck down to 30 caliber. Well, I think they're both barrel burners. The uh, 37830 Weatherby has better ballistics. It's about two, 300 feet per second faster. You know, you're talking 3,500 feet per second versus maybe 3,250, that kind of a deal, you know. So, you know, it's faster, but I think they're both barrel burners, and so it doesn't really matter. Because uh, you got to, if you get one, get one with a barrel that uh, quick that you can replace quickly yourself because you're going to be going through them. Uh, other than that, I don't know if the bullet construction can tolerate those kind of velocities. Sometimes high velocity does strange things to bullets. So I would be very wary that, that they're going to have the accuracy for real long range shooting. You know, part of... Everybody wants to think about extended long range shooting as velocity and how fast can I drive something. But really, you know, there are a couple other things you got to look in for too. For me, barrel life is a big deal. And for another aspect of that, uh, accuracy. You know, is it the right, is it the right amount of velocity to get max up to get that low that flat trajectory and have accuracy? Because if you don't have accuracy, what do you really have? I mean, um, at, at those long ranges, you're just going to be burning a lot of powder and making a lot of noise. So those are those are aspects to it that I think really have to be looked at. Some of these cartridges are so cool on paper, but what is the practical application and the practical performance? And I'm not sure anybody knows, so I'll be, uh, you know, interested to find out. But certainly, if you can get bullets that can withstand the velocity, that uh, 37830 Weatherby is pretty interesting. I, I would really want to follow that and see uh, how that goes. 300 Ultra Magnum. I just don't know. Just don't know. It, uh, it's just not. I don't know that it gives you enough over a regular 300 Magnum to make the uh, to make the additional effort worth it. So, anyway, that's the uh, that's my answer. Um, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. Again, any questions or comments, you can email me at kbmakel at aol.com or post them in the con in the. Uh, um, comment section on Podbean. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.